Hi, my name is Mandy Jackson Beverly, and I'm a bibliophile. Welcome to the Bookshop Podcast. Each week, I present interviews with independent bookshop owners from around the globe, authors, and specialists in subjects dear to my heart the environment, and social justice. To help the show reach more people, please share it with friends and family and on social media. And remember to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to this podcast. And if you'd like to donate to the show, head on over to thebookshoppodcast.buzzsprout.com. Click on the orange heart in the right-hand corner of the page where you can donate via Buy Me A Coffee. And thanks to everyone who has supported the show. Before I get started with this episode, I'd like to give a shout out to Stephanie Stilo and Emily Moore, curators at the Library of Congress Rare Books Division. They put on a fantastic symposium at the Library of Congress last week titled Making the Modern Book, which featured books from the Aramont Library. It truly was a fantastic event. Thank you again, and it was fun meeting you both. Another thank you to Carissa Pastuch, reference librarian in the Geography and Map Division at the Library of Congress. Thank you for showing my husband and I around the map department, uh, something I think my husband will remember for many, many years. And I am now the proud owner of a Library of Congress reference card. I encourage everyone to go to the Library of Congress website and see the information that is available to the public. It is phenomenal. And of course, if you're in DC, stop by the Library of Congress building and take a moment to wander around the reading room. It is absolutely beautiful. I can't wait to get back there. Okay, let's get on with the show. You're listening to episode 184. And in this episode, we are in my home state of Tasmania, Australia. Fuller's Bookshop was established in 1920 by W.E. Fuller in Hobart, Tasmania, Australia. In 1961, the shop was taken over by Cedric and Ian Pierce, famous not only as booksellers, but as jazz musicians. In 1980, when Cedric became ill, the shop was purchased by Ian Drinkwater. Clive Tilsley bought Fuller's in 1982 and in 1992 moved the bookshop back to Collins Street. In 1996, the Afterward Cafe was established on the mezzanine level of the shop. This moved Fuller's onto another level of business. In 2001, Fuller's opened a second shop in Launceston at the north of the state where Clive spent 13 years establishing the brand in a very competitive book-buying market. In 2009, the Hobart shop moved yet again, up the road to a bright new space with a fabulous view of Mount Wellington. In 2014, Fuller sold its Launceston shop and at the same time, Clive moved back to Hobart. In the 30-plus years under Clive's guidance, Fuller's has confirmed its status as a leading bookseller in Tasmania and a fundamental component to the cultural landscape of the state. In 2021, Tim Jarvis took over ownership, steering the bookshop through the pandemic and continuing the tradition of Fuller's Bookshop being a hub of the community, offering a wide range of author events, readings, book clubs and publishing. Hi, Tim, and welcome to the show. It's lovely to have you here. Thanks, Mandy. It's a pleasure to be here. 
I like to begin the show with learning about my guest. So what inspired you to take over as owner of Fuller's Bookshop from longtime owner Clive Tisley? And you have a PhD in philosophy, is that right? Yeah, I do have my PhD in philosophy. So I, I actually, I started at Fuller's as a volunteer uh, in 2013 to run uh, a reading group. Um, I got into my head that I wanted to do something outside of the university and Fuller's had some prominence and um, I thought we might attract a crowd if we did a philosophy reading group there. Um, so I popped in and I just spoke to somebody there that I happened to know and they took the proposal to Clive and he liked it. We didn't meet for two years after that, uh, but it was lovely. For two years, every week, I would come in on a Wednesday and we would work through various so Rousseau and uh, Aristotle, and we'd just do a chapter a week. Um, and then uh, around the time my PhD was wrapping up, uh, I was in search of a job and one came up at Fuller's, so I, I started working on the, on the shop floor. And that's when I got talking to Clive uh, about what he was doing and he expressed a desire to, he, he wanted to retire. Um, and it took us another six years to get it together, but um, 2021, I took over the shop from him. Oh my goodness, what a time to be taking over a business. Slap bang in the early years of the pandemic. I'm sure that was not easy. Uh, yes, very tricky. Uh, Hobart had been shielded from the pandemic for quite a long time, uh, but it was a few months into the beginning of my tenure that it really started to uh, affect us. So uh, this time last year was absolutely crazy um, uh, with everybody grappling with the Omicron wave. and uh, So it was a baptism of fire. No kidding. My goodness. When you think of it, Fuller's Bookshop was established in 1920. Is that right? I think you're 122 years old. Yep. We'll be 103 on the 16th of February. Wow. And during that time, the bookshop has endured multiple location moves, wars, the wildfires of 1967 and 2016, floods, changing demographics, and the COVID-19 pandemic. What did you do to survive during those early days of the pandemic? So the last couple of years in particular, we've had to move a lot of our operations online. In uh, in February of 2020, we were using very antiquated stock management point of sale system that had been built in the 90s, um, upgraded a few times since, but was still essentially the same system that had no proper functionality to have a website. It had no cloud functionality. It didn't integrate with anything. Uh, it was a workhorse, but it was um, increasingly a sort of a very isolated workhorse. And so when we we closed our doors for um uh, about a month early in the in the pandemic we used that opportunity to completely overhaul the it so we moved to a system that can do uh, is in the cloud and can do things on the internet and we actually have a viable web presence now the biggest change from my perspective is how nice it is when uh, people come in they're looking for a book and they show you the book on their phone and the website they have open is our website rather than coming in and they've got amazon open or something like that um, and it's, uh, yeah, no, it's a real pleasure. I love hearing stories like that. And what about online events? Did you pivot to those too? We paused events for quite some time. We never really embraced the online event. Uh, we did a couple, but then uh, late in 2020, we were able to start doing small in-person events again. Um, and so we picked it up from there. Uh, it's changed the way we do events quite a bit because um, still to this day, 
we have to keep a fairly close control of numbers. Uh, in the old days, we held almost everything in the shop and we were in our, in our cafe and it didn't matter how many people turned up. Uh, we once had 400 people in the shop for Annabelle Crab. Uh, and it, it's a big site, so it can gets a little bit squeezy, but it can um, it can handle that. It would be very frowned upon to do something like that these days. Uh, so we've we've had to rethink the way we approach organising the event and ticketing them and all of that kind of thing. Uh, we we have different venues we use depending on how big we think the event is going to be. Uh, but it's it seems to be working. Plenty of people are still coming along. So. And you mentioned you have a cafe. How many years has that been running for? I am not sure exactly what year it opened. It was in the 90s. Our story, at least, is that we were the second bookshop cafe uh, in the country. Uh, the first was in, in Sydney somewhere. Uh, and Clive had got the idea after a trip to the States. It was somewhere in San Francisco, I think. And he saw a bookshop cafe and he said, we have to have one of those. Yeah, it's great that you can use that space as your event space too. Now, Tasmania is home to fantastic writers. Of course, we have Richard Flanagan, our world-renowned author, Catherine Lima, Bob Brown, James Dryberg, Pete Hay, Heather Rose, Daniel Wood, and indie author Prue Batten. Is there a strong sense of support and camaraderie within the Tasmania writing community? And how does Fuller's Bookshop support local Tasmanian authors? There certainly seems to be a strong sense of um, camaraderie with a uh, local writer. Certainly whenever we're launching one person's book, there will often be a large network of writers that uh, come along to support. So we do a few different little things to um, try and support the local writers. So one is we're very keen on launching books by local writers. So in the last few years, so 2020 and 2021, we won't count, but the last few years, um, we'd, be do, we'd be doing 100 or so launches a year uh, and a, a, a very large chunk of those are, are local writers. In the last couple of years, I've been trying to connect a lot more with those uh, indie authors uh, around the place um, who don't otherwise have the, sort of the backing of a, a publisher and their marketing budget uh, and to try to uh, support them in getting their books out there in ways that we can. We have an event coming up in just a few weeks, which is a, a bit of a Q&A with some of the prominent authors in the indie author scene and one of my colleagues, and it's a, it's a Q&A session on sort of the process of self-publishing and how to get your book out there and that kind of thing, uh, which looks like it's going to be a bit of a hit. Um, the Tasmanian poetry scene is one that I take a particular interest in. And in the last year or so, we've started a events program aimed particularly at that that we call Fuller's Poets. Uh, I think I managed to do four or five events in that series last year, and uh, almost all of them sold out. They were sort of sold out or close to it, uh, which is terrific. Uh, we've got more lined up for that this year. The, the poetry scene is very active here. Uh, and really quite close knit. Uh, so it's yeah, it's really good to support them in that way. Tasmanian writers definitely have a certain feel in their work, and it is similar to me to the work of Irish writers. I spent 10 days in Ireland over Christmas, and I'm always amazed at the writers coming out of that country, uh, specifically right now all of the female writers. They're phenomenal. And I was thinking as I was preparing the questions I wanted to ask you, 
if perhaps there's something about living on an island, such as Tasmania and Ireland, apart from both having quite cool climates, although that is changing with climate change, creatives aren't continually bombarded with everything happening around them as they would be in, say, America or the UK. I was thinking that maybe they have their own style and feel because they're not influenced continually by other writers. Their creativity is born from the somewhat isolation of living on an island. What are your thoughts? I think there's a lot to it. Uh, I, I hear stories about the writer culture in uh, certain other Australian cities. It just sounds brutal. It's um, it's just a sort of a hunger game scramble for the uh, for the prizes. Whereas Hobart, Tasmania, more broadly, isn't really that. Um, I think one of the things that's common for trajectories for Tasmanian writers is that there's there's not a strong Tasmanian publisher with even national reach. Uh, there are a, few, a number of um, Tasmanian presses that produce interesting things, but it's all within Tasmania. It's when uh, if, if a writer wants to become more widely known or more widely distributed, then they're looking to uh, publishing houses um, either in Melbourne or Sydney or further afield. And I feel like that feeds back into the uh, writing in uh, often quite interesting ways. Uh, It means that a lot of it is very Tasmanian. Yeah, and a lot of it uh, is built around the geography and the history of the state too. I definitely suggest to our listeners that they pick up some Tasmanian author's books. Pick up a Richard Flanagan, for starters, just to get a feel of the flavor of Tasmanian writing. It's definitely unique. Okay, speaking of geography, Tim, our listeners enjoy learning about the areas where the indie bookshops are located. What historical and cultural sites, vegetarian restaurants, hikes and independent businesses do you suggest to visitors who may have a couple of days in Hobart? So the obvious thing is if somebody's coming to Hobart uh, to go to, say, Mona, and obviously that's a good idea, that's terrific fun. Uh, but even just to focus on my own little neighbourhood. So Fuller's is on Collins Street, the CBD. It's on a bit of Collins Street that uh, locally we like to call Upper Collins Street. Uh, and there are a few terrific places along there. So just a few doors down from us is a wine bar called Lucinda, uh, which is fabulous. Uh, they, uh, they're they very big on sort of biodynamic and organic wines. And they have a wine list, but the, the standard practice is that you wander in and you ask them what's on and they'll say, well, what kind of wine do you like? And you'll say, well, I like a red wine. And they'll say, well, do you like a light red or do you like a heavy red? And they'll pick something for you. And it's always a delight. At the back of Lucinda uh, is a restaurant called the Amarca uh, that has some amount of international profile. So your listeners may be aware of them. It's a small sort of degustation uh, place. That they probably don't seat more than 20, 25 people at a time. And it's often booked out months in advance. Uh, but it's terrific. Uh, heading in the other direction, uh, say it was a, a sunny morning and you wanted a, a, a coffee, obviously there's Fuller's has a cafe, which is also terrific. But if you were saving Fuller's for your book browsing later in the day, there's a, a lovely little cafe down the road from us called Sunbear that do uh, sort of light treats and, uh, and coffees and things. And if ever I'm meeting somebody and for whatever reason, I, there's not space for us to, to meet at Fuller's, we'll go up to Sunbear. Uh, for a vegetarian restaurant just around the corner from us, there's a little cafe called The Little Lotus. 
which is at the bottom. They're on the bottom floor of a building called the Lotus Center, which is sort of a local yoga center. And they just do fabulous vegetarian food and the menu changes with the seasons and it's just it's a lovely place. When we're looking to go further afield, I live down in the Huon Valley, uh, which is just south of Tasmania. It's the, uh, the Apple Valley, as it was once known. It's a 30-minute drive from the city uh, and it is absolutely stunning for a, for a day trip or a drive around. Uh, there are also places to uh, swim along the coast down here if it's the right time of year. In Tasmania, the right time of year is January or February, but it's absolutely beautiful. Well, Tasmania is where I grew up, so I have a bit of a soft spot for it, and I adore Hobart. You mentioned Mona, which is the Museum of Old and New Art, and I'll make sure to put links to everything we've talked about in the show notes. But for anyone who has not been there, look it up. The architecture is incredible and the boat ride down there is beautiful and the art the curation of the art is unique i love to hike up to mount wellington and get that view over the city and the valleys it's absolutely stunning salamanca market down by the wharf is fun to go visit at the weekends and there's a great graveyard kind of right off salamanca market i can't remember the name of it Yes, in St. David's Park. That's right. And it's fabulous. I love to visit graveyards. It's uh, something that attracts me. Uh, and also the architecture around Hobart and the south is beautiful. All oh, that sandstone. It's just a gorgeous, gorgeous city. And yes, as you said, the Huon Valley is stunning. It's funny the change that Mona has made to the way we think of ourselves down here because Hobart was always a fairly isolated southern capital. But then Mona opened and we all thought, oh, maybe we're cool now. <laughs> yes, maybe that's right. And it's just completely, it's changed the, the way the city feels. Well, it's tourism. And with this comes cultural diversity. Have you seen this change within the city? So when I moved to Hobart, uh, it was 2006, uh, and I moved here, I, I grew up in Darwin, which um, is so the, Australia's northernmost capital. Uh, it's actually closer to a number of Asian cities than it is to any other Australian city. And it's, it's a cultural melting pot, people of all races and creeds wandering the streets. And I moved to Hobart, and in 2006, in 2006 Hobart was very white. And that was the first thing I noticed about the place. Uh, and that has changed a lot in the time that I've been here. There are all kinds of cuisines and there's people from um, all different cultures uh, wandering about here now. Uh, a lot of students at the, the university, uh, a, lot, uh, a lot of people who have moved here. Uh, you can get Vietnamese street food easily enough now, which was unheard of 15 years ago. Uh, and it's, it's lovely. It's a great change. Yeah, Tasmania was definitely not like that when I left in 1982. In fact, it's one of the reasons I left, because I wanted to experience a more diverse culture. And how has this diversity in the population affected the way you curate the bookshop? Oh, now that's a really good question. We have had at various times small selections of uh, books in various languages, particularly for children. Often it's when uh, somebody from a local community has written and published one. One of the big things is that we stock quite a bit of history across a lot of different regions because there's a lot 
more diversity in the interest of what people are wanting to read. And there are quite a few, in, it, I feel like in the last few years, there have been a slew of um, memoirs from people from various migrant communities that are talking about the um, the experience that there was uh, there was one about uh, a, a community a family that had moved over uh, as refugees from Vietnam a few years ago the local Ukrainian society published a, a book and so there's there's a lot of pride in the migrant populations yes and it's great these books are getting published it makes me very happy now what have you learned tim about the business of running an independent bookshop since taking over the ownership of Phyllis bookshop no doubt you've had some stressful moments <laughs> yes it, it, it's been a steep learning curve uh so i've been uh at the helm now for 18 months uh and seeing the shop through one annual cycle i learned a huge amount one of the things i learned about bookshops is that their uh, their financial software is not at all obvious because you pay for books on account and so you're always paying for the books you sold a couple of months ago and so in the second half of the year bookshop sales will kind of go like that up towards christmas but you're always paying the bills for the quieter months which looks terrific and it's in the first six months of the year suddenly as sales are going like this we're going to we so we have winter in the middle of the year here uh, that you're paying the the big bills with the smaller income uh, and that was a big uh, that was a surprise to me but uh, i've learned that lesson <laughs> i bet you did <laughs> and what did you learn personally about yourself i think i've felt just about every possible emotion about it so uh I've done the full spectrum there last year was it was a tricky one um for me personally variety of reasons i was wearing too many hats so our long-standing events manager had retired and at the moment he retired we weren't doing that many events i started off as his deputy so i just picked that up and i will go with it and as the events program got busier and busier i realized that that was a job in itself uh, and then i was trying to manage the shop and the business oversee uh, things in the cafe and uh, it was all too much uh, this year is looking much sunnier so i've uh, I've got a bookshop manager in there now, um, my long-term colleague, Anne, who is our um, assistant manager. And we've got a, a new uh, events manager as well who's doing fabulously. Uh, and I, uh, I have a baby due in a month, so I'm rather keen to be able to take some time off. And so things are looking very good for that. Oh, my goodness. Yes, you're going to need to take time off. But it's great that you've set the scene, so to speak, made all these arrangements, hired the right people, and now you can feel good about taking that time off and be with your family. Yes. Tim, what do you see as the benefits of independent bookshops and how do you envision their future in our communities? Oh, that's a good question. So we've always fancied ourselves as a bit of a community hub. It's just nice when the shops full of just people idly browsing and then the cafe adds so much movement and life. There's something about the smell, particularly of coffee, that comes out of the cafe. But just that the sound of the clinking of plates and all this kind of thing, that low conversation that happens in there. We're very much a place where people run into each other uh, because at some point, more or less everybody who has anything to do with books in Hobart comes through into Fuller's and so you never know who you're going to run into. Uh, you mentioned Bob Brown before. He's often enough in having lunch in the cafe. You see all kinds of people all of the time. The cafe has a wonderfully big poster wall, which is a great 
asset because it's it's such a snapshot of everything that's going on in Hobart. A number of cafes have poster walls of various sizes, but I reckon ours must be among the biggest. It's quite a substantial one. And we like to be the kind of comfortable, quiet place where people can just go. Like we, we, we try to be helpful when people come in, uh, but by and large, people are very welcome to entertain themselves in there and, uh, and they seem to really enjoy it. We also do a lot, both with events, but with our reading groups. We try to involve and include as many people as we can. Uh, over the years, we've run quite a range of reading groups, but at the moment, the main ones are a, um, we have a flagship one that's just called The Reading Group, which has about 100 people in it. And it's split across five or six sessions. Wow, 100 is a big number for a reading group. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful. And with the waiting list as well, the only thing capping it is how much energy we have to run it. It's run by a, a colleague of mine named Rain. She's run it for the last couple of years. She's terrific. She's only recently moved to Tasmania. She was a, a former academic and she taught places in the America, in England. And she just, she just has a real passion for books and talking about them. So she does a terrific job with it. Uh, we have another reading group that's been going for very close to 25 years now uh, called The Shared Reading, where a group will get together once a week for a couple of hours and read a book out loud. So over, say, 10 weeks, they'll get through Crime and Punishment or War and Peace took a little bit longer. I can imagine it would be right up there with reading Ulysses. Yes, and they've done Ulysses twice. I think I need to join your group because it's a difficult book to read. It is. And so that, that's a, a, a terrific group. Uh, last year, we started a, a group aimed at um, younger readers. And by younger, I don't... It's primarily targeted at people who are, say, between 20 and 40. And it's called Millennials and Friends. Um, so anyone is welcome to join. That's been doing really well. It's a, another colleague of mine named Maddie uh, who runs that. Uh, we're looking at maybe starting a crime group this year. Last year, we started a, uh, a poetry group. It, it was a great get for Tasmania, but a few years ago, we somehow managed to poach the former poet laureate of Colorado, David Mason, uh, who now lives not that far from me down in the south. He recently retired, uh, but he'd spent his professional life teaching poetry and he was very keen to continue to talk in poetry with people. So he uh, and his wife, Chrissy, come in and run a, a poetry group once a month for us. So they, they started off last year for the centenary of the Wasteland, which is one of their all-time favourite poems. And they did a sort of a double header, two nights running, two hours a night, and they just talked through the whole thing, which is amazing. And you run a philosophy club, is that right? Yes, I uh, I have at various times done both a philosophy club and a Shakespeare club. Neither I've been very good at. Uh, since I took over, finding free evenings has been a challenge. Uh, but I managed to revive the Shakespeare group last year um, in collaboration. So one of the people who would often come to the Shakespeare group uh, is a local theatre director named Robert Jarman. Uh, who has a, a great passion for Shakespeare and has been doing a series of Shakespeare productions in the Tasmanian Museum and Art Gallery. Wow, that's a gorgeous building. Oh, yes. He uses their spaces. Uh, a, a few years ago, he did Hamlet. That was probably 2018. And he did it in the basement in this really claustrophobic space, and it was unbelievable. Uh, last year, he did 
the winter's tale and he managed to i don't know how, how he convinced them he managed to take over the may gallery uh, and it must have been an enormous amount of work for them because they would have had to reset it every night so that it could function as a museum during the day and then at night they had the winter's tale in there and we organized to do a special uh, session of the shakespeare group we all read the play on our own time and then we went to see it and we arrived a couple of hours early and they'd organized a, a space in the museum in the portrait gallery which was somewhat uncanny and we sat and discussed uh, the winter's tale with with robert and some other members of the cast uh and then went and, and watched the production and it was just it was just terrific. And that's a wonderful event to offer your community. Okay, Tim, what is your go-to book to hand sell? And what are you currently reading? There are two books that are in a way my go-to. So uh, at the moment, the, my non-fiction pick, and it's certainly the easiest sell, is by an American philosopher lives in Paris, named Justin E.H. Smith. The book is called The Internet is Not What You Think It Is. And it's terrific. And it's it's quite it's relatively short so 150 200 pages it's not daunting it's wild smith's just this incredible mind he seems to know something about just about everything and he connects it all together in this incredible web and it starts with a chapter on the concept of attention and what's going on when we're paying attention to something or when we're attending to it and the way the internet is in its current form is hijacking that but then it turns into this extraordinary romp through the history of ideas, looking at precursors to the internet. In a way, what he wants to show is that the idea of the internet itself is not particularly new, and he has these fabulous examples. Uh, there's a particularly great one about uh, a fraud that was perpetrated in mid-century Paris, in, uh, sorry, in the 19th century Paris, where somebody claims to have invented what well, it was effectively an early form of text messaging but using snails so the the idea was that for some reason if you manipulated a snail at one site its twin snail would also something would happen to it you could read off the signs it was just terrific uh, and then through natural history as well uh, just looking at interconnected information networks it's a wild book it's just anything and everything that's wonderful. He's an excellent writer. And the title of that one is The Internet is Not What You Think It Is. Yes, Princeton University Press. Yeah. And then my favourite novel, and it's often a harder sell because distribution is not very good for it uh, and the editions that are available are not that well produced, uh, but it is Elias Canetti's 1935 novel, Auto de Fe. It's published in English, I think, just after the Second World War which is terrific. It's, it's savage and dark, and uh, I think one of the best novels about the way every person lives to some extent in their own fantasies, and I've never seen a, a novel that, um, that, that carries it off so well. And once again, I'll make sure to put links to these books in the show notes. Tim, thank you for being a guest on the Bookshop Podcast. I know you need to go and open up Fuller's Bookshop, so I won't keep you any longer. Thank you. It's been an utter delight. Come to Hobart, I'll take you out for lunch at one of these vegetarian restaurants. That sounds great. Maybe sometime in 2023. You've been listening to my conversation with Tim Jarvis, owner of Fuller's Bookshop in Hobart, Tasmania. 
Make sure to follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Mandy Jackson Beverly and the Bookshop Podcast. If you'd like to donate to the show, go to thebookshoppodcast.brassbrout.com, click on the little orange heart in the right-hand corner of the page, and you can donate through Buy Me a Coffee. For all inquiries, contact thebookshoppodcast at gmail.com. The Bookshop Podcast is written and produced by Mandy Jackson Beverly. Theme music provided by Brian Beverly, executive assistant to Mandy, Adrian Otterhan, and graphic design by Francis Ferrala. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>